Welcome to the Colonial Department, the podcast where we take long-lost stories from Philippine colonial history and bring them to life. In this episode, we open the curtain to a dawning new age of Philippine cinema, or rather, propaganda, as both Americans and Japanese realized how useful film could be in the colonizing of the mind. This is episode 11, Lights, Camera, Propaganda. There was no camera crew, of course, following around Miguel Lopez de Legazpi when he went ashore in the island of Cebu and found, amid the smoldering ruins of the village he just shelled to the ground, a little image of the child Jesus. There was no flash of light or explosion of flash powder to document his Douglas MacArthur-style power walk up the beach of a newly conquered Manila. With the invention of camera and film still centuries in the future, the beginning of the Spanish reign in the Philippines would only be immortalized in chest-puffing European historical records. But if there was no photographer around to capture the start of Spain's rule, there certainly was one who captured images of its limping, pathetic end. In 1896, journalist and photographer Manuel Arias took a photo of the execution of Rizal, whose death would ring in the bell for the fall of the Spanish reign. Three years later, when Spain had already ceded their 300-year-old plus colony to the United States, Arias found himself lugging a camera around in Baler. Inside the town church was a company of Spanish soldiers who refused to surrender to the Filipinos. Arias had accompanied a Spanish delegation assigned to convince the troops to give up the fight and go back home to Spain. One of Arias's photographs shows three Spanish officers walking away from the town church. In the grainy photo, their heads are bowed and the Spanish flag is slung low over their shoulders. They had just been rebuffed by a stubborn lieutenant who refused to believe that the war was over and that he should lay down his arms. And so we have a photograph showing one of the last days of Spain in the country, capturing a moment so symbolic of an empire that was so ineffectual, it couldn't even order its own troops to stop fighting. The Philippines' new conquerors, the United States, wouldn't make the same mistake. The budding technology of camera and film would become a key tool in the rule as the Americans polished up and sold the grand idea of empire back to its own citizens. Thomas Edison played a big role in all of this. That's right, Thomas Edison the inventor, the entrepreneur, the Tesla rival, the guy who promised to make electric lights so cheap only the rich will light candles. In 1891, the same year results El Filibusterismo was published, Edison Laboratories filed two patents, one for the kinetograph movie camera and another for the kinetoscope movie viewer. Soon after, his company set up the world's first film studio in an enclosed building the employees jokingly called the Black Maria. The outside of the Black Maria studio reminded people of a police patrol wagon. It had a sole window on the roof that could be swung open like a sail to let in the light, and the entire building was built atop a pivot 
so that the window would always face the sun. Inside, the studio cranked out crude motion pictures, 20-second snatches of boxing matches, circus performers, vaudeville shows, and propaganda films about the war that had just broken out in their brand new colony. Two propaganda films are described by archivist Kemp Niver, who once won an Academy Award for restoring the earliest American motion pictures. Both films were produced in 1899, the images printed on celluloid strips about 20 to 30 feet long. None of them were shot in the Philippines. To play the Filipino troops, the Edison Studios contracted black actors, a particularly loaded casting choice. Here's Kemp Niver's synopsis of one film called Advance of Kansas Volunteers at Kalookan. The first scene was photographed through thick foliage. Approximately two dozen men have rifles pointed at the camera position. As the film progresses, the men advance towards the camera, firing. From the left and the right of the camera are men wearing American Army uniforms who walk away firing at the first group of men. A man carrying an American flag follows. He is shot and another soldier picks up the flag. As the picture ends, the soldier waves the flag triumphantly. And then here's another film called U.S. Troops and Red Cross in the Trenches Before Kalookan. As the camera begins, a ditch or trench can be seen in a heavily wooded area. A man attired in a U.S. Army infantry officer's uniform jumps into the ditch and brandishes a sword, indicating that others should follow. Soon, the trench is filled with approximately 20 men wearing American infantry uniforms. They fire their rifles over the rim of the trench, gesture as if cheering, and proceed to leave the trench. The film ends as two of the men fall wounded, and two women, dressed in Red Cross nurses' uniforms, are seen bending over them. Why were these two films focused on Kalookan? Well, at the time the films were produced, the Philippine-American War had just gotten cracking. The fateful rifle shot of Private William Grayson on February 4, 1899 lit the fire of the inevitable conflict, and the soldiers of the newly formed Republic and the newly formed Empire went to war. The Americans had occupied Manila after a sham battle against the Spaniards, and so when Spain sold the Philippines to the U.S. for $20 million, the capital of the Philippines passed on smoothly to the new occupiers. The Filipinos, who had considered the Americans their allies in the fight against Spain, quickly realized how deep a betrayal can cut. Philippine troops fortified themselves in old Spanish blockhouses to the north of the Pasig River, and both sides had a months-long stare-down over demarcation lines to see who would blink first. War commenced after Grayson shot and Kalaokan became one of its early battlegrounds. On the U.S. side were members of the 1st Brigade, including a detachment led by Colonel Frederick Funston, who would later capture President Emilio Aguinaldo. On the Filipino side were some of Aguinaldo's crack troops, many of whom died in the Kalaokan battle. 
Military Governor Elwell Otis would say of them, They became the most formidable troops in Aguinaldo's army, fought splendidly at Coloocan, where they lost in casualties a large portion of their numbers. In a few months, Filipino forces under General Antonio Luna would try to retake Caloocan, but found themselves outnumbered by a vigorous, well-equipped American defense. Broadcast in kinetoscopes all around the U.S., the Caloocan films made sure to show the American soldiers in a heroic light. More war films followed, and soon a whole flood of others. From its crude beginnings inside studios like Edison's Black Maria, film would soon become a juggernaut entertainment. Filipinos were not immune to its flickering hypnotic charms. By the 1930s, around 50 films a year were already being produced by homegrown studios. When it was their turn to occupy the country, the Japanese recognized the power of film to create effective propaganda, or what they called thought war. At the start of the invasion, the Japanese propaganda corps for the country included six novelists and poets, four painters, nine reporters, two broadcast technicians, four printing technicians, 26 Catholic and Protestant ministers, as well as five movie people. Soon after they marched into Manila, the Japanese observed that Filipinos spent much of their time listening to the radio or watching movies, swallowing whatever entered the eyes or ears, as reported by one official. Films were so central to social life, the propaganda corps argued to the military chiefs, that movie theaters should immediately be reopened to give their new subjects a quote-unquote sense of normalcy. Heavily censored pre-war Tagalog and Hollywood films were played again and again in movie theaters in occupied Manila. But the cultural officers among the occupiers had a bigger goal in mind. Sell the idea of Japanese-Filipino unity with a gigantic movie production co-produced by both the Filipinos and the Japanese. The result was Ano Hataute. This literally means fire on that flag, but its official English title is Dawn of Freedom. It was a 1944 film that featured a who's who of local cinema, including lead star Fernando Poe Sr. That's right, the father of the king, as well as prisoners of war who were forced into an unexpected acting career. It was directed by Yutaka Abe, assisted by Gerardo de Leon, who would later become one of Philippine cinema's early masters. Here's how the film's story goes. As American soldiers flee Manila, Captain Andres Gomez visits his family home, where his kid brother Tony asks his friend, Lieutenant Garcia, for a helmet from the hated Japanese as a war Later, Tony is run over by a truck driven by one of the escaping Americans. A kindly Japanese soldier takes care of the now lame boy and even gives him a life-saving blood transfusion. Ikeshima is my name, huh? You don't mind if I have a little business. When this Japanese soldier departs Manila to fight the Americans in Corregidor. Tony miraculously stands up from his wheelchair to give him thanks. Meanwhile, 
Tony's brother, Captain Andres Gomez, is captured by the Japanese. While he is interrogated, he is also kindly treated by Japanese officers. This is in stark contrast with the experience of Lieutenant Garcia, who, under command of the desperate Americans, digs trenches in Corregidor. If you find Japanese leaflets or surrender cards on any of them, take them out of the line. One American officer is particularly tyrannical. When Garcia questions this officer's decision to shoot a deserting Filipino soldier, he is assigned to a suicide mission. Captain Gomez is later set free by the Japanese and finds the body of his friend, Lieutenant Garcia. In his arms, Garcia is cradling a helmet with a message for the young Tony. The message reads, the real enemies are the Americans. The movie ends with the surrender of the Americans to the Japanese and the final shot of Imperial Japanese officers looking at their watches as a vehicle carrying U.S. flags drives off into a lonely road. In Japanese advertisements in the homeland, the film was hailed as a must-see. Posters promoting the movie carried the line, Together, the Philippines and Japan rage with patriotic fervor and here join as one. The posters even called it, strangely, a co-produced, magnificent, massive bullet. Bizarre ad copy that was likely a nod to the film's official Japanese name. Internal records from producer Toho Studios showed that at that time, Ano Hata Oute was one of their most popular films. But the movie was released at a time when the Japanese occupation of the Philippines was already in its last legs. When General MacArthur landed in Lingayen Gulf, his swaggering walk immortalized forever in a photograph, Filipino guerrillas torched and vandalized every print of the film they could get their hands on. And when Americans commenced their invasion of Japan and defeat seemed at hand, the film's cameraman burned every print of the film, seemingly fearful of the retribution that would come to the producers behind this blockbuster. Ironically, it was General Douglas MacArthur who saved the only remaining Tagalog-slash-English version of the film. During the occupation, he instructed Filipino guerrillas to smuggle a copy of the movie out of the country. Resistance fighters hid the film reels inside an ox cart and in a boat before it was brought to Pacific Command in Australia. That print of the Dawn of Freedom is now preserved inside the National Archives of the United States, the propaganda film of one invader ending up in the vaults of another. If you want to view it, writes film historian Marcus Nornes, you need to set up an appointment with the archives. It is under catalog number 242-MID-2929. At the time I wrote this episode, you could also view it on YouTube. So grab your popcorn and see you at the movies. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Colonial Department. Here are the references I used in this episode. Many of the descriptions of the American and Japanese propaganda films are from the book Keywords, Essays on Philippine Media Cultures and Neocolonialisms, written by Rolando Tolentino 
and published by the Ateneo de Manila University Press in 2016. More information on the film Ano Hatao Ute comes from the essay Nihon, Philippine, Hewa, written by Abi Mark Nornes and published in the book Gerardo de Rion Kantokuo Megute, which was published in Tokyo by the ASEAN Bongka Center in 1995. Info on the Japanese Propaganda Corps was taken from the article The Japanese Propaganda Corps in the Philippines, written by Motto Eterami Wada and published in the journal Philippine Studies in 1990. Information on the Black Maria and Edison Studios was taken from articles in the U.S. Library of Congress as well as the article Movies and Money written by David Putnam and Neil Watson and published in the New York Times archives. The Colonial Department was created and produced by Leo Mangubat. Follow us on Instagram at The Colonial Department.